1 to 11. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a maid patisant, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame. Lord, because we have sinned against you, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the law he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey. The second reading is from Daniel chapter 9 verses 20 to 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are the decree for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to the sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and trenches, but in time of trouble. After the sixty-two seven, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and dissolutions have been decreed.
he will confirm the covenant a covenant with many of one with many for one seven in the middle of the seven he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temp and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out to him this is the word of the lord Thanks uh, so much, Ashish, for reading that uh, for us. Um, Why don't we pray? Father, we do ask for light and illumination that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to know you better and know ourselves better in light of you. Amen. Um, So this week, uh, we all held our breath for the government roadmap uh, to wait to find out what was going to happen uh, kids going back to school next week, uh, it seems, um, and it comes in these uh, different steps that uh, maybe uh, step two, April, can maybe get a haircut, uh, much in need. Uh, step three, maybe by May, maybe able to go to the cinema or do something like that. Uh, step four, uh, June, who knows, will we be able to have events Perhaps Wimbledon will come back, that sort of thing. And in this uh, chapter, it turns out that Daniel gets his own roadmap, but it's quite difficult to understand and to make sense of. Um, Some stuff is going to happen. There's some stuff about Jerusalem. There's some stuff about an anointed one. Um, But we're told uh, step uh, two, um, well, that's no earlier than seven sevens whatever that is. Step three, certainly no earlier than 62 sevens, whenever that is. And step four, no earlier than one more seven, and a load of stuff is going to happen in there, and we're not really sure what it is. So you see what I mean? It's a a roadmap, but it's not a very clear one. Now, if you found the government's roadmap not very clear either, then, you know, we're all in the same boat. But we're going to try and figure out a little bit of what uh, is going on, try and make sense of this chapter together, hopefully. Um, and see what it is telling us about God's timing. It begins, I think, uh, just it's worth saying, I think the, the chapter as a whole, if we just follow the story a little bit, it'll help us hopefully navigate our way. It begins in the first year of Darius, verse 1. It says, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, so he's got his Bible open, and uh, from Jeremiah in particular, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, this is happening when Daniel is about 82 years old. We've been clocking his age through this book. He's about 82. um, And he's come to the point when uh, he's read in the Bible, in Jeremiah, that 70 years was going to pass. He's lived most of that 70 years in Babylon. And at this point, there is a decree, an edict, which is given out, um, which allows the Jewish people to begin to return to Jerusalem. Um, This uh, um, is called the Cyrus Cylinder, um, and it's uh, in the British Museum, um, and scholars kind of discuss whether some of what's written on here might relate to that edict. There's talk about repatriation and going back to homelands and whether that relates to it. So this is anchored in history. This is what happened. And you can imagine Daniel reading his scriptures, the 70 years, wondering... So is this it? Is this the time? Is this when we all get to to go back? And then the chapter unfolds with his prayer, 
and then God's response. And so we'll look at those two things um, together. And before, it, it has a very similar pattern. Even though it's not got a vision, beforehand we would have a vision, and then we'd get an interpretation of the vision. This time we don't have a vision as such, but we have Daniel's prayer, but he still gets an interpretation. So there's a similar pattern, even though it's a slightly different um, content. So Daniel's prayer, he turns to pray, and it's summed up in verse 20. So late on, he actually makes a useful summary of it. He says, I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and I was making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. So he's talking about himself, the people, and he's asking God about the people and about his holy hill, which is shorthand for Jerusalem and the place that they came from, the land. And the way his prayer works, um, in the first half of it, it appeals to a number of different things. He appeals to God's character. So he says things like, Lord, you are great and awesome, in verse 4. Uh, in verse 9, he says, Lord, you're merciful and forgiving. Um, in verse 14, you're righteous in everything you do. He appeals to the, the character of God. He appeals to God's promises, to his covenants. Lord, you made this covenant of love with us. He appeals to God's past actions. Uh, a little later on in verse 15, he'll talk about Egypt and God who rescued them from Egypt. Uh, he appeals to God's name. Uh, at the end, he says in verse 19, in, in, for the sake of your name, Lord, do these things. So he's appealing to these different aspects of God. And then he also uses a whole range of words to do with his and the people's sin. Uh, so he talks, at verse 5, there's a whole sort of selection, if you like. Um, he says, we've sinned, uh, like we've missed the mark, we've done wrong, we've done the wrong actions, we've been wicked, uh, we've rebelled, uh, we've turned away, we've gone a different path, uh, we've not listened, we closed our ears. Whole sort of set of words for um, what they've done. Now, here is Daniel doing what a thoughtful, believing Jewish person would do. He's read in the Bible that 70 years is up and that they were going to return. And so he gets on his knees and prays. Do you know how sometimes if you're, um, uh, if you're at school, if you remember being at school, sometimes a teacher would give you a, a model answer for an exam. You might be sort of thinking about exams at the moment. Uh, a model answer for an exam. So the teacher says, look, here's a, here's a model answer. If you do it like this, this, is, this, will, this will be the right kind of thing to do. And in lots of ways, Daniel's prayer is like a model answer. It is a model prayer. You really couldn't, you couldn't get sort of more um, sort of in tune if you'd wanted to with the Old Testament, the language, the way to approach God, the right things to talk about, the way of doing it, uh, from somebody in that day reading their Bible thinking, um, I'm focused on the Lord, what he's doing, and if I want to pray to him about returning to the land and returning to Jerusalem, this is exactly what you'd pray. It's like a model prayer. Now, you could certainly preach and talk about this um, as a, a brilliant example of repentance and what to learn from it. And um, there are books that are written on it with that kind of theme. And it is a really good thing to, to reflect on and to think about it. But I don't think that's why we're given it in this chapter. I don't think we're given it so that uh, primarily we focus on uh, how to repent and what you should do. I think there's something slightly different that's going on, um, and it's because of the answer that he gets when uh, the angel comes and uh, speaks to him. 
So God's answer to Daniel's prayer, let's zoom in on that and uh, tie these two things together. Um, It comes in verses 20 to 27. Um, Daniel is there, he's praying, um, and mid-prayer, as as we heard, mid-prayer, suddenly uh, the angel Gabriel appears and begins to speak to him and talks to him mainly about time, about time. Um, Now, these sevens that get talked about are usually uh, taken as being about years of time. Okay, so seven, seven is seven lots of seven years. They're different phases of time, Um, and I've tried to put them together here. Um, Last week, there was a bit of geography, but this week, um, it's maths. And so if you just work through, he talks about three, three different um, lots, seven sevens, 62 sevens, and one seven. And if you do the maths and you times those by seven, and then you add them up, you end up with 490 years. Okay, so it's quite a long period of time. And so what the message that the angel brings to him is, there is this process that is beginning of another 490 years. So as if to say, um, this chapter isn't here to teach us about repentance, although repentance is a very good thing to reflect on and think about, but as if to say to Daniel, hang on, this isn't going to work out in the way that you are thinking. Daniel, you're expecting 70 years. Maybe he was reading his Bible, maybe he got his suitcase packed and ready. He's kind of looking at his watch thinking, is the taxi going to arrive and take us all back to Jerusalem? He says, you've got 70 years in your mind, but this is not going to play out in the way that you are thinking. In fact, this 70 years is going to turn into another 490 years. So Daniel is there, packed and ready, ready to pray, and the message comes, no, 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 it's much more than that. Now, how do you make sense of these sevens? Let's just, uh, we need to dive into this, I'm sure you've got lots of questions in your mind going, well, I still don't really understand what on earth they're talking about. Um, I can I encourage you, um, the, uh, the sevens, uh, the 77s have been described by somebody writing a long time ago as the dismal swamp of Old Testament criticism. Now, that will encourage you all, won't it? So people have tried to wrestle with this and work out what it is. So let's put on our waders and we'll wade into the swamp and see whether we can make any sense of it. Verse 24 is like a summary, like an executive summary, if you like, of the whole thing. And it says that over this long period, this process, three things, uh, six things are going to happen, three negative things and three positive things. The three negative things are, there's this long period of time that is needed to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for wickedness. So that's dealing with sin. And then there are three positives, bringing in righteousness, sealing up the vision, which means um, authorizing or authenticating it as genuine, and then anointing the holy place. So there are three things to to do with dealing with sin, and three things to do with bringing in righteousness and God's kingdom. Now, the, the final couple of verses, 25, 26, and 27, break that down, and I've, uh, they, they, they talk about a number of different things that happen, and they seem to be focused on two different figures, um, and there's an anointed one and an evil ruler. And in this final phase that he talks about, um, it all gets a bit strange, but he talks about this anointed one who's then going to be killed. Um, it talks about Jerusalem being destroyed again, and then a final war. Now, this is sort of the end of everything. And lots of people then sort of look at this and go, ah, so there's an evil ruler, 
and thinking about the chapters that we've had before, and they think, aha, that sounds like it might be our old friend Antiochus IV, um, who, you know, do you ever think you never get to know Antiochus IV as much as you have? Well, there he is. And they kind of think, okay, so now you might remember he's about 150, 160 years BC, um, and they kind of think, perhaps that's the, this evil ruler, um, because he destroyed the temple, he did lots of uh, terrible things to the Jewish people. But then others read it and look at it and we say, say, well, it says that there's going to be an anointed one, and that anointed one is going to die. Now, that sounds quite a lot like Jesus. So maybe it's talking about Jesus, which is obviously uh, um, uh, uh, 150 years later. And both of those have problems. If you try and pin it down really neatly to one or the other, and they have problems because if it was Antiochus, then you're wondering who on earth the anointed one is. And if it's Jesus as the anointed one, you start to wonder, well, what on earth is this final war that happens and a desolation of the temple and that sort of thing. So both of them has, have problems. And it's more sensible, I think, if you got lost in all of that, it's more sensible to take it as symbolic of a long period of time that is coming. And the symbolism might be, uh, for those who um, enjoy this kind of thing, 49 is the period in the Old Testament before a year of jubilee, before a year of freedom comes. And so the 490 may be just a symbolic number that points to a long period of time before God brings about his perfect kingdom. Perfect freedom, sin dealt with, and perfect freedom for his people. And it can help us, if we just stand back for a moment, to see this as a, a, a long period of time, just in the, in the way that it's put in the different chapters the different visions and the different chapters have all said something about this long period of time, and they've put it in different ways so that we don't get sort of hung up on one in particular. Sometimes it can be helpful to think, okay, so in chapter 7, it talked about it as time, times, and half a time. And then uh, last week, we saw it talked about 2,300 evenings and mornings, and this week, we have these sevens. And there'll be some, some uh, days that are mentioned in uh, the chapters that we'll look at next week. So you see, from different ways of describing it, they're all a long period of time, and over this long period, we see patterns emerge. God's people are oppressed. There are evil rulers who will rise and oppose God and his people. But it ends with evil and sin defeated, and God's kingdom and rule ushered in perfectly. So let me just try and draw all this together. What do I think is going on in this chapter? Um, so much of the way that this chapter seems to work is around Daniel's expectations. There is Daniel with his suitcase packed, looking for the taxi, ready to take them back. And actually, that's not how it works, says God to him. It's not how it's going to work. Um, there was an old um, movie uh, from a few years ago, uh, a, a sort of romantic comedy kind of movie, and they did a very clever thing where they had a, uh, a split screen for a scene in the movie. They ran this, this split screen, and they ran the same scene with two different uh, kind of ways of looking at it. One was called Expectations, and one was called Reality. Um, and so it was this guy, and he was going to go to a party, and there was a particular girl that he was hoping uh, to win over. And as he goes, he goes with his expectations that he arrives, and you see it played out. He's funny, and he's clever, and she's sort of won over by him, and by the end, they're enjoying uh, sort of a, 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 a drink together on the, on the rooftop. Um, the reality 
that plays out is that it all kind of goes wrong. And when he arrives, actually, he, he doesn't get a chance to talk to her, and then he discovers she's with someone else, and it just doesn't work out, and you see him at the end on his own. And there is this difference between expectation and reality. And perhaps Daniel was there, and he took his Bible literally, and he, uh, he was reading, and he thought, this is the time, and this must be the moment. And if you're somebody who reads the Bible in, in that way and thinks very literally, you're in good company, because noble Daniel was your friend. But the message, the jarring message, is that this isn't about you, Daniel, getting back to Jerusalem. This isn't this map that we've had saying this is how far they traveled. This is not about you all getting in the taxi and going home again. Actually, it's about something much bigger. All along, the prophets had something much bigger in view. A new covenant, a new relationship with God through an atonement-making Savior they would need. A new covenant, a new relationship with God, a new creation that he was ushering in. Their view was much, much bigger than Daniel could have ever imagined. So do you see the story of the chapter as it unfolds is this difference between expectations and reality and God's timing in that. Now, what do we take from this? What do we take from this? I think a couple of things I just want to draw out as we, uh, as we bring this to it together. The first is saying that God is in control doesn't mean our expectations will always be met. Saying that God is in control doesn't mean our expectations will always be met. We've made quite a big thing of this in this series, that here is a book that tells us about God's control, his sovereignty, his rule, his hand over things, and it's, it's a comfort, it's a help, but it doesn't mean our expectations will always be met. I wonder if, if, you're, if you're like me, sometimes we say God is in control to ourselves. But underneath, we think of God in more like a kind of referee or an umpire. So we think of God as, as in control, but he's, he's more like a referee or an umpire. Now, now, he's a good referee or he's a good umpire, and he, maybe he leans a little bit in our direction and kind of favorably towards us. But of course... As it happens, if, if, there, if there was a moment of brilliance from us, we could still change the game anyway. So he's kind of in control, but, but he's... Do you see what I mean? I wonder if we have that view of God. And it's when our expectations aren't met that we really have to face whether we think God is in control or not. Uh, Sarah wrote uh, an email out to the families um, this week. You might have got it. Uh, just referring to the fact that whenever we've had a week where the Prime Minister has made an announcement, it's often quite a difficult week, isn't it? You have a week where, where things suddenly seem to change. Um, it generates a whole set of uh, expectations or reactions to those expectations. Were they what you were hoping for or not hoping for? We've had them at kind of intervals through this year, and you might have just been through another week like that this week. I don't know whether you found yourself underneath everything. There have been emotions and reactions that you've had to things. Parents, I don't know whether you found yourselves grumpy with your children this week and not entirely sure why. Or children. Maybe you've found yourselves grumpy with your, or annoyed with your parents. I wonder if you have found yourself prickly with your spouse or with your work colleagues or with those you live with. 
I wonder if you're wondering. I don't fully know why I found myself lashing out this week. Or how much, just looking back over this past year, how much anger or blame has been a part of your life in directing that outwards as things have happened or walls have closed up or hedges have formed around what we've been able to do. And I wonder how much of that is our assumption that underneath it all, that we really run the game ourselves and that we're in control, even though we say God is in control. So saying God is in control doesn't mean our expectations will always be met. But God does know, secondly, God does know the timing that is needed. Perhaps this is just as striking when you look at Daniel and what's happening here. Given this model prayer that he prays, not even repentance is enough to bring sin to an end and make atonement. Not even repentance is enough to bring sin to to an end and make atonement. The Old Testament model always had its limits. It, It was a shadow, yes, of things that were to come, but it had its limits. Those of you who might know the book of Hebrews well will know it, it speaks of exactly that. It had its shadows of what was needed and what was to come, but it was limited. It needed the gift of God in Jesus Christ. It needed the gift of God in himself, in Jesus Christ, who would come as an atonement-making saviour. It needed the gift of God. It needed a wholesale review of the relationship, if you like, a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way of relating to God. It needed Jesus. It needed his timing and God's hand on it. And I think it takes... It takes a revolution in your mind, almost, to see things that way. To see that it works around what God knew would be needed and not around ourselves. It takes a revolution in your mind to sort of rethink your own life in relation to how God sees it and what he thinks is wise and not around ourselves. Um, This week, just uh, as I finished, I I got to do a session um, uh, it was for some of our students and a couple of church members. I got to interview them and chat with them about what it is like to be from different cultures, um, and particularly of, of uh, mixed cultures in the cases that I was chatting with. So one person uh, who's a mix of um, Hong Kong and British cultures um, and one uh, a mix of, of Nigerian and UK cultures or experience of or heritage um, thereof. And we wrestled as we chatted about this, um, about uh, God's hand over our lives. We wrestle with kind of questions of why have our lives been shaped the way that they have? And we, we reflected, actually, it has taken years to begin to glimpse our lives as God sees them. It's, been, it's taken years to kind of fathom, glimpse our lives as God sees them, to to sort of put together that actually God knew us before we were born. His hand over the events of our lives began way before we could do anything about it. And not that that was necessarily, uh, it's it's a good thing, but it's also, it's not a very easy thing. It may have brought challenges or hardships. You may know this in your own life. But the timing of that is not something that we were in control of. God was in control of that. But in the midst of that, he knew the course of our lives, and we were, we, as we chatted about this, he knew the course of our lives and the ways in which it would bring us to know him. 
That's the control that he has, so to speak. That's the, the hand, the timing he knows over our own lives. And it takes quite a lot of thought to process and think, I am not the center of this universe. He is. We may find our expectations aren't met. Saying, in, saying that God is in control is, a, is a, it's an important Bible truth. It takes quite a lot of time to kind of think it through almost. But God does know the timing that is needed. He knows the timing that was needed for his people to bring them into relationship with uh, him. He knows the timing that is needed and was needed for you and I to bring us into relationship with him. It is the subject of our final, uh, final our next song. Um, we may not know all of the timing, and often things may feel very dark to us, but God does know it. Um, and so we're going to pick up these words, Christ alone, cornerstone.